Comet fans, it is a special edition of the Combat Ops Arena Comets podcast. And Combat Ops Arena this summer has gone through a lot of changes, a lot of additions, which means a lot more fun for you. They have got a new mini golf course. They now have outdoor axe throwing. Of course, all the other things inside the building are there for your pleasure as well. So get over to Combat Ops Arena. It's on Lay Road or check them out at CombatOpsArena.com. Okay, let's do this special edition of the Combat Ops Arena Comets Podcast. Hey, how are you? How's everybody doing? How's everybody's summer going? I know it has been a bit of a long off season, but uh, after every day ticks down, we get ever so close to opening night. So thank you so much for being here today listening to this podcast. It is I, Shane Alberani, your play-by-play announcer and podcast host. And uh, we didn't have any here during the off season until today. And the reason why is because uh, Mike Doc Emmerich just strolled into the office today and I was able to uh, sit him down for an hour and have a little chat with the voice of the NHL. And if a lot of you don't know Mike's connection with Fort Wayne, the Comets are the reason why he does what he does. He grew up just 50 miles away uh, from Fort Wayne, often came to Fort Wayne Comet games, and that uh, was his love of hockey. And uh, that's how he turned to hockey as uh, a life and a career. And uh, the whole world uh, is grateful that he found his way to the Coliseum uh, back in 1960. So uh, Doc is a good friend of the organization uh, with the, the Franke family, and he's a huge huge Comet fan. Uh, so uh, again, Doc was very gracious to come in and uh, sit down and have a little chat uh, with me. So uh, here is Mike Doc Emmerich on the Combat Ops Arena Comets podcast. But how are you? I'm doing well. That, uh, <laughs> that golf shirt looks very good on you. Thank you. Thank you. I should have brought something appropriate myself. I certainly have been sent enough Comets garb over the years <laughs> that uh, I should have worn something appropriate, right. but I didn't know it was coming. That's I'll have okay. to do. I'll do better next time. Yeah, you're surrounded by Comet logos anyway. Well, yeah, here, so. and Myron Cope's official terrible <laughs> yeah, towel as right. well. <laughs> So, well, you know, Doc, thank you for coming in. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize that if it wasn't for the Fort Wayne Comets, you might not be doing what you're doing now. No, chances are not at all. Uh, Because, you know, we had no real exposure to hockey in this part of Indiana. And I grew up in really, really rural Indiana uh, in La Fountain, halfway between Marion and Wabash and surrounded by cornfields and basketball courts and there was an occasional game on CBS television that at that time was black and white and snowy Uh, but the Comets were the only exposure that anyone had to hockey and they were not televised uh, uh, except occasionally on Channel 33 
but their games were on 50,000 watt WOWO, and so that was my exposure to the Comets until after a lot of pestering, uh, I got a chance to see them play uh, December 10, 1960, and that was an epiphany for me because up until then I wanted to be a baseball announcer, and at age 14, uh, that was the change, and as you and I sit here today, I will be 73, and so almost 60 years ago, um, my life changed because of the Fort Wayne Comets, and I wanted to become a hockey announcer, and um, providentially or some other reason, uh, that's what God wanted me to do with my life, and so I got the lucky break <laughs> to do what I wanted to do, yeah. too. And I think of myself how lucky I am growing up in Fort Wayne because if I had not grown up in Fort Wayne, I would have gone a different direction. I, I highly doubt I would have gone into broadcasting, let alone hockey broadcasting. No, you could have yeah. you could have been in Cheyenne, Wyoming. That's right. So you'd be doing rodeos <laughs> now. But yes, we were all fortunate yeah. because of the presence of the Comets yeah. and and because of the the rescue of the franchise by the Frankies years ago, and to spend time on a Wednesday morning surrounded by a lot of of Comets who may not have made a lot of money but just dearly loved to play yeah. in the 1950s when the franchise first started and in the 1960s. So we were in good company on this July morning when you and I got a chance to sit. Yeah, and you got to uh, sit with Len Thornson, who's one of your favorite players. Yeah, right? he and, and he, I, yeah. I, I, I liked the finesse of the sport and I liked the fact that it was tough. And so my two favorite players were Len Thornson because of the finesse and Con Madigan because of the thuggery. Right. And I am still in touch with both of them today. Yeah. And I'm very glad of that. And, and you just met Lenny, what, a year ago? Was yeah, the for time? the first time. Yeah. No, we, we had, uh, I had known about him, of yeah. course, for years. And uh, he had learned about me, I guess, from the telecast. But... Uh, yes, uh, we've we met each other for the first time uh, two years ago, and and of course, when somebody is your icon, why it's a big thrill when you get yeah. to meet them, even though you're in your 70s and they're in their 80s by the time it first happens. Yeah, you, but I remember specific yeah. games, and of course, he does too. Right, that I got to pay the price of admission, which was probably $1.75 to watch him play. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> you know, but uh, Thornton's one of those guys, you know, he, he played back in the day when there was only six teams in the NHL, and a guy who probably would have been an NHL All-Star oh, had yes. played today. Yes. And you think uh, this year in the NHL we had 999 players suit up for yeah. a game. So 1,000. And had that been the case he would have been one of the top 200 absolutely, or maybe 150. Yeah. But at the time that he was at his athletic peak, there were only 80 to 85 guys that would play, including injured players in the course of one season. So it just wasn't to be. And there were players of that era that spent the rest of their lives condemning themselves because they were born too early. They had no control over that. Right. And he did not do that. Uh, he used to tell the story, and you've undoubtedly heard him say it, <laughs> that he would go to Montreal training camps and Toe Blake would say, you had a great camp, have a good year in Fort Wayne. Yeah. And he would say that every year. And 
So Len would come back into Fort Wayne and have a great year, six-time All-Star and scoring champion and all of those things that we admired him for. <laughs> now, out of all the – I mean, you obviously have met everyone in, in hockey and probably outside of hockey, but where does – finally sitting down talking to Len Thornson rate? Oh, it, it, <laughs> you know, the thing is your your childhood is is – so much of your childhood, whenever you go to a reunion, let's say, a high school reunion, and in my case, it's been 55 <laughs> years, you always wind up talking about the years that you were together in high school and not, not so much the years after. Why is that? Well, my thought is those were years where there weren't many worries right? and everything was just kind of fun. And I think it's the same thing when you look back at the time when you were uh, when you were watching sports as a kid. And so for that reason, uh, all of the memories that I have of the players of that era that I got to have breakfast with this morning was just about the glorious times that I idolized these guys and it was fun. And so to be around the people that were a part of that time in my life it's fun for me because that was the great time in my life as a fan. Uh, do you remember walking through the Coliseum for the first time? Yes, uh, because there were a lot of ramps then. Right. Anyone who was over 50 <laughs> years old. The ramps are still there. Yeah, yeah over 50 <laughs> years old, remember that the ramps never ended. Right. And there weren't elevators. And, uh, and you started out by going uh, through those eight, doors that uh, that opened up and you went in and the, you heard the the kids screaming common hockey lucky number souvenir program and you usually got one of those and then you went up these endless stretches of ramps until you got into the upper concourse and then you had another set of steps to go up and yeah the uh, the first thing was I'd never seen ice before other than one other mm -hmm. time and that was when my parents brought my brother and me to see Holiday on Ice just after mm -hmm. the Coliseum had opened. I think I was in second grade. And I imagined what it would be like for hockey, but this was Holiday on Ice. And yeah. it, was, it was attractive young ladies in tutus and things that didn't interest me. I was in second grade right. and I just, I wanted to see contact right. sports. So this was different. I was in fourth grade at the time or fifth grade and I saw the Seifert's potato chip Zamboni machine going back and forth. And I didn't care, but I didn't understand why the lines didn't get scraped up and put into the back <laughs> of the bin too. And then Muskegon's Zephyrs came out with these bright blue uniforms and then the Comets came out and they're white with orange and black. And, and the, the colors just seem so vivid. Maybe in my memory, they're more vivid than they were in person that night. And the game was uh, required overtime. Con Madigan, uh, of all things, scored and skated around the ice backwards to celebrate. That was because he rarely scored. Right. I guess that was something <laughs> that it was his trademark. <laughs> and that was in the final minute of the game. Why he was, Con, if you're listening, I'm sorry, why he was out there <laughs> in the last minute of the game with trailing by a goal, right. I don't know. But he did score. And it went to overtime, and at that time, they played 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, the game ended in a tie after 10 minutes of overtime. But Con 
and Moose Lalo, the player coach from Muskegon, had a fight with two seconds left in overtime. And I thought, well, this is showing proper <laughs> attitude, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but it was, it was wildly entertaining. And um, combined with my listening to games on the radio, my, my career path changed. And so that was that first time. We stopped at the Hobby Ranch House for chicken and ham before the game. <laughs> Funny what you remember. Yeah. Now, when I go to yeah. call, I don't know how much time you have. Here. Oh, we have. Uh, You're okay? Oh, we're fine. Okay. So whenever I go to college uh, journalism classes, and, and, and if it's a small enough class, I'll ask each kid to talk about the first sporting event they ever attended live and what they remember. Now, I've given you a, at least a rough idea of what I remember yeah. about mine. And almost invariably, they will have a pretty good grasp of detail, but I'll look at their faces, and almost invariably, there'll be a big smile on their face. They'll <laughs> remember who they went with. Yeah. They'll remember their first inkling of what they noticed when they walked inside the arena. Outside, yeah, maybe a yeah. little. But once they get inside and they see the playing surface of whatever sport, and, and invariably they'll have a big smile. The other thing that I notice too is oftentimes I'll ask people that are now at the top of their profession, NFL coaches, mm -hmm. about the first job they ever had as professionals. Same thing, big smile of recollection. Uh, Chip Kelly, for example. Yeah first job you ever had. I was an assistant coach at Columbia University, assistant football coach. 6,000 a year. We got to live in the dorm. I wasn't married. We lived in the dorm. We got one free meal a day, but they let us styrofoam another one back to our rooms. So in essence, if we were clever enough, we got two free yeah. meals a day. And all of this time, he's got a big smile on his face. And I think that's part of it is the early years, you, you oftentimes enjoy the struggle because you've got ahead in your mind yeah. what you really want to do. And I think people that have arrived in, at the place they want to be can now look back on it and say, it was worth it. And they can smile about it, but at the time, they probably weren't. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, those yeah. are a couple of things. And yeah. a long-winded answer to your question, um, it was Fort Wayne and Muskegon, and it was a 3-3 tie. And it was a, it was a life changer. And how often would you go back after that? What, what was it? You know? um, yeah, uh, usually yeah. we'd go to a game or two a year because it was such an event for us. Mm -hmm. And my parents were both teachers. So we had school schedules. Uh, my brother was in uh, just beginning high school. I was still in middle school. So uh, he and I were both in our grade school athletics. He was a baseball player. He was all county as a pitcher. I, was, uh, I would play summer softball and baseball. And so we had a lot of things going on. And so the idea of, of being able to get away occasionally on a weekend we would often come to Sunday matinees mm -hmm. or the traditional Christmas night game yeah. or the Thanksgiving Eve game yeah. because it didn't conflict with anything at school. So those were games that we could get to. So Colin Lister and Ken Elliott had us figured out. 
when they would schedule those two games. Right. Um, uh, so we wouldn't get to a lot of games, but we would get to two or three a year, and there was all, they were always big occasions. When I got into high school and was able to drive, then we would oftentimes pass on our high school basketball team's home games or, or, or road games and come to the Comets on Saturday nights because uh, it was 8,032 and they yeah. always sold out. And yeah. we would get tickets and come to see them play. Now, uh, obviously, you've, you've minor league – uh, you know, and the NHL, everything you've been around. Have you ever seen the, the kind of history and fan base Fort Wayne still has? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, but it's not a different feel. But it yeah. is. Yeah, it is. And when they raised the roof and got the seating capacity to 10,000, I thought, well, going to have a hard time getting 10,000 people here. Well, uh, it wasn't. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure from a marketing standpoint, it presented challenges yeah. to add 2,000 more seats and then fill them. And some years, because you're a developmental team and you count on the parent team to provide you with talent, some years they do, some years they don't. But by and large, this franchise has just continued to be such a focal point and such, uh, such an important part of the hockey landscape that others copy it. And do you see this in other cities? You do see it in some, like in Hershey and Rochester, you see this, but, but you don't see much like this Right. Between the mountain ranges, from the Appalachians to the Rockies, you don't see much consistency like this one's had since it started in the 50s. You just don't. Yeah. And you've always bragged about Fort Wayne. You'll, you'll, yeah. you'll mention Fort Wayne on the air every couple of uh, games. We, we, I mean, I, I remember the first time I heard Fort Wayne mentioned on the national scale, you were doing the game, and you had, uh, the Comets were in uh, Turner Cup final at 92-93, uh, and you mentioned Pokey Reddick, and you mentioned the Comets, <laughs> and, you said, and you said, yeah, you, you said, oh, you know, good luck to the Comets and Pokey Reddick and, <laughs> and the Fort Wayne Comets. Well, we always try to tie it in with something nationally, and of course, he had had credentials at the national right. level, at the NHL level, and so it was a a tie-in for NHL fans to say, oh, yeah, I remember that guy, <laughs> and he's in Fort Wayne now. And this was uh, this would have been either before or after the, uh, the famous game played by the trainer when Pokey couldn't go. Uh, that would have been after. That was that when, when after? Joe, that was, that was 2003, I believe. So yeah. it, was quite, it was about 10 years difference. At, but, yeah. Uh, that was the uh, that was um, uh, fr Frankie. What was his? Was, uh, Joe Frankie. Joe who's Joe still, Frankie. Still, yeah. still no the, relation, but no, yep. still a, an, an important part of That's uh, franchise right. history. Yep. Pete. What a what an incredible story that was. I do carry the story with me in my three ring binder. Um, there are several stories from minor league days and from the NHL days. I have a binder that's three rings and it's about two inches thick. And in the very center of it are the lineups in numerical order of the two teams. And on either side of those lineups, for about two or three pages on either side, are biography, uh, biographies of the players on both teams. And then on either side of those are a couple of items like rules, specific how long we've had timeout rule and and uh, how long we've had the replay rule and what are various things it can cover, um, how many goalie goals we've had and who has scored them and when the last one was. But then the most, uh, probably 65 to 70% of the three ring binder is taken up with pictures of people that I've met and oddball stories 
like Frankie mm -hmm. and uh, and other oddball things that have happened and that I want to keep nearby <laughs> just in case the conversation comes yeah. up. So if I had the binder here, I'd yeah. be able to give you the date that it happened yeah. and who the other two goalies were that couldn't play. <laughs> but I don't have it. <laughs> well, I know uh, Pokey was one, and I want to say Tommy Lawson was the other, but I'm not Might sure. Be. Might be. Yeah. I'd have to look at that myself, my memory. But I carry it with <laughs> me always. I have the 1994-95 the Albany River Rats because I'd never seen so many guys go to the NHL, and it was one of the last teams where the AHL and the NHL team won their championships the same mm -hmm. year. New Jersey and Albany both won the same year, and... Uh, so I carry that around with me in a, a number of other high penalty minute games, mm -hmm. which you don't think we have in the NHL anymore. There was one between Ottawa and Philadelphia that had three or 400 minutes, and it was kind of a throwback to the way things were yeah. when I first broke in in the 70s when Port Huron and Fort Wayne had a playoff series where they fought in the warm-up. <laughs> and there was a referee named Skeets Harrison who uh, came out on the ice while the fighting was going on in his street clothes with a cup of coffee and a cigar. <laughs> and this was in Port Huron. And uh, God love him, we're radio rinkside here. He would be sitting next to me and he would say, let me take it from here, Michael, because I wasn't present, but he was. And Skeets went out and he, he, he wasn't able to stop any of the fights, but he just wanted to let them know that he was watching <laughs> as they were throwing punches. A cigar in one hand, halfway burnt right. down, and a cup of coffee in the other, <laughs> and not in uniform yet, but this was a fight in the warm-up of a playoff game. <laughs> don't have that Just anymore. Just showing the attitude, yeah. proper attitude. Yeah. Now, you uh, called games in Port Huron against Fort Wayne. How tough was that the first time you had to call? Well, yeah, and Bob was down in the other booth, and, <laughs> and of course, we had a good chuckle over things, but um, but all of a sudden, you know, I, I at that level, um, you know, this was not a network broadcast. It was, it was expected that you at least uh, paid enough homage to the visiting team that were you were fair, but you also realized that you were broadcasting exclusively to Port Huron Wings, later Port Huron Flags fans, and so you were making sure that you were partial. I, I had a, a rather, I, I had a bad approach to fights in that I would score them on the Nevada 10-point must system. <laughs> I don't know if you heard about mm -hmm. this, no. Um, I changed it, when I, I just stopped it one night in Columbus. Uh, the, the winner of the fight would get 10, and the loser would get a number less than 10. If it was a close fight, it would be 10 to nine. If it was a, a, a one-punch knockout, it would be 10 nothing. So, and the players were, became very intrigued by this, and so they would always ask me as I got on the bus at the end of the night how I scored certain fights. So, we had a guy named Dennis, DeRose, uh, Dennis Delorier who was, who was missing a lot of teeth, and he was a very good fighter, but he would get in these fights, and if, if he would get one punch, he would bleed enormously because he would be hitting the gums and, and, and he would just bleed. And so it would look worse than it was. So anyway, he got in a fight with this big tall kid named Richardson from Columbus and I scored at 10 to eight Richardson. And so I got on the bus after and they asked me how I scored the fight and I told them 10 eight Richardson. And they said, are you kidding? Richardson didn't finish the game. <laughs> he went down to the dressing room and one of the players said for a snooze, 
He never came back. <laughs> so that was the end of the 10-point must system. But, uh, yeah, I, in my days in Port Huron, I was partial for the team, and that was what was expected. Right. It was, it still had that inner – the inner turmoil, probably. Of course, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> those were the guys that I paid the price of admission to cheer for. And right. now I was – now, uh, they don't belong to me anymore yeah. <laughs> until I left Port Huron. And, and then the team folded uh, in 1980. And so my boys became the Comets again. And you uh, you practiced your play-by-play like I did, sitting up in the in the rafters uh, at the Coliseum. Do you, do you remember the first time you did that? Yes, I was a student at Manchester. Um, and I remember Cal Purinton was, was playing and he, of course, he, he was, of course, very rough and tumble and Merv Dubcheck was playing and Merv Dubcheck had a breakaway goal. I remember that I called and, you know, when you have a call that you're happy with, as you listen to it in the car on the way back home, it, it gives, it energizes you even more to want to do that for a living. Mm -hmm. And... I can't remember who the Comets were playing that night. It may have been Port Huron. I can't remember, but it was long before I got into the line of work for a living. But I remember the, the fight that I got to call because Cal basically attacked somebody. <laughs> uh, he didn't like the way that there was he, – he was run into in the corner, and he didn't like it, so he went after the guy right away. It was hockey right out of Deuteronomy, you know. It was, yeah. okay, you got me. I'm <laughs> getting you, and I'm not waiting. It's happening now. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you listen to a few things back and you realize there are a lot of things you could have done differently, but there are a few things that you liked and you realize this is great. If I could only do this for a living, right? You, you know, the yeah, feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you remember the first game you got paid for? <sighs> first hockey game I got paid for was the, yeah, was the first one that I did for Port Huron yeah. because I was at Bowling Green for two years doing the second period of the game there. A student was allowed to do the second period and a staff member was paid to do the first and third. And uh, when I went there as a doctoral candidate, the Terry Shaw, who later did the Gold Diggers, mm -hmm. uh, was the staff member who did football, basketball, and hockey. And he said, if you come here, you can do the second periods of the games for your two years residency because the guy that did the second periods just graduated. So you're on. And so I said, okay, I'm coming here. And uh, then after I had enough, I had a legitimate air check, not one from the Coliseum in, mm -hmm. in Upper 8. <laughs> uh, I had a legitimate yep. air check, and I sent it all around, and finally I didn't, get, I, I didn't get a whole sling of rejection letters. John Wismer from Port Huron called and said, come up and talk about it for 160 a week I was in. So that was the first one I got paid for. It was Port Huron at Toledo. Tim McQuistian was the goalie for Port Huron, and Glenn Ramsey was the goalie for Toledo. And uh, Port Huron won six to five. Six to five, and, and you still have. You know, we were just we were talking before we uh, hit record here. We, we we both still have an affection for Toledo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was what an and Bob McCammon, of course. You know, we can tell these stories now because they the 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 sports arena. You have your favorite story too. Uh, the sports arena is dust now, but um, <laughs> the ghosts are still around. Yeah, the, the old um, the old visitors' dressing room. You had to had to get down the hallway. You had to survive the walk down the hallway with one cop at the front of your single file line and one at the back. Then you had to go up the steps, the same ones the customers used, down the steps to get to the ice surface, and 
so Bob McCammon, our coach, had played in the league for 11 years, so he knew the deal in Toledo. And so that first game in Toledo, he pretended to be naive, and he asked the cop behind the bench, he said, do you have any trouble with security here? <laughs> and the policeman, wide-eyed, said, there's a guy in that section way at the top who is slingshotting bullets down here at the visitor's <laughs> bench. We know he's doing it, but we haven't caught him at it yet, but we're going to watch him. And Bob said, oh, that's good. <laughs> wow. Uh, welcome to Toledo. So we were glad we won the game. And later on that, the next year, they instituted 10-cent beer nights, and then, they, then the commissioner had to stop it because they got so rough. But... It was it was a place that we all have memories of, and yeah. I'm sure you do too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and and they outfitted me with an enormous suitcase that was painted bright red. <laughs> and you know, so I'm carrying this. I'm by <laughs> myself. I'm five seven, not like Chase, who's six feet ninety. Right. I'm five seven, and I'm walking with this bright red case that says Port Huron <laughs> on the outside of it. In and out of this this place where they sell hard liquor as well as yeah. beer and stuff is getting thrown into the booth from outside and it's just i'm considered part of the enemy I, I, you know and i'm holding up my hands kind of saying i didn't do anything <laughs> right. we all we've uh, every broadcaster's done that yeah i guess Toledo. that's true right <laughs> So are these like you know the stories like that? Obviously, you're you're you calling games in the biggest arenas and the best places. But you know, do you, you still have that affection for those days? Oh, right, yes. the bus. I mean, I wouldn't want to change a yeah. thing, and, and I don't think you would either. And I don't know if you have as your ambition in life to to do NHL games. Maybe you do, but if you reach that, and you ever write a book, the longest chapters will be the ones in Toledo and places like that because they were a part of your maturation and your growing up years and the colorful times because the major leagues aren't quite so colorful. Right. They're corporate. They're yeah. not allowed to be colorful. Yeah. And especially in that era um, where you didn't have enormous marketing departments, you were basically it. I mean, you did everything. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of times you didn't do everything very well. <laughs> and so we had promotions some nights. There was one promotion we had in Port Huron where uh, the, the beneficiary got 25 cents for every ticket. Mm -hmm. And they sold six. <laughs> and it was a special night, and, yeah. they, and they sold six. So I think Morris Snyder gave them $25 instead of a dollar and a half you know, for, for taking on the promotion. But we had some that just <laughs> fell flat on the face and some that really turned out well. But. And those and, and that's such a it's such a romantic time. I mean, it, even, it even, is even, now, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I've got up on my wall here. I, that's probably the only one still in existence. The, the Golden Bears marshmallows when the Comets switched their logo to the Koala Bear. One night in 1988, uh, they gave away marshmallows. And I remember that game very vividly Why? because uh, we were playing Flint that night. Uh, tie hockey game late in the third period. 
Flint scores the go-ahead goal with a couple minutes left, and every one of those marshmallows hit the ice. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm probably the only one still left with, with, with one of the empty bags anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that I still Golden <laughs> Bears peanut butter flavored. That's right. Marshmallows. And you know there was maybe 4,000 people in the in the seats that night, but I think they gave away about 10,000 packages. At least that's what it <laughs> seemed like, because every single one of those marshmallows hit the ice when Flint scored that goal. Uh, you you do have quite a wall <laughs> of fame here, don't you? Yeah, it's, uh, that's my homage to 80s Comets hockey because that's when I grew up in it, and that's uh -huh. when I fell in love with it. And it's, I've always, I've said this to Michael, I've said this to David, I'm like, it's such a, a lost decade because there was no cup winners. Uh, the team was trouble financially, but two of the best Comet teams of all time, 84 and 86, yeah. did not win cups but no. two of the best. Isn't that the way it happens sometimes, that you, you have a really good team and you get within a game or two, but you don't win the whole thing? You'll see you know, coaches will reflect on that too. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Boy, you do have quite a wall. <laughs> Thank you. And you're still young. <laughs> yeah. You, you still have one other wall there that looks like yeah. you could probably put a few other things above your calendar. Uh, yeah, if I kept everything that I, I've collected over oh, the I years, I, yeah, I'd have another house, really. <laughs> That's the problem. See, I have. And now, after 46 years, I'm starting to eliminate. So Do you have a favorite piece? I mean, not necessarily comets, but just... Yeah, I, I just uncovered it again the other day. At the 92 Olympics... Um, I was going down some steps after the morning skate before the U.S. game was Sweden. I was doing the Olympics for CBS, and I slipped on some snow and broke my wrist. And they, uh, after the game that night, they took me to an infirmary, and, and um, a young woman had to go along with me from our CBS inf infirmary. Uh, mm -hmm to speak French for me because I didn't <laughs> know it. And they put a cast on. And Keith Kachuk and I were getting casted at the same time. And so before I left the Olympics, after the U.S. had, it was expected to finish eighth and they finished fourth, they played for bronze and they lost to uh, Robert Long and um, and, and the Czech, uh, they were called Czechoslovakia then for the bronze medal, so they finished fourth. But I had all the guys sign my <laughs> cast. And that, uh, it, it's a memory not because of a broken wrist, right. but because that team overachieved remarkably, and almost all those guys played NHL. Ted Donato and Mike Dunham and, you know, yeah. all, all the, almost all those guys played NHL. And so that's a favorite. I don't know if it's the ultimate favorite, but I'm not much of a saver, yeah. although I did collect a lot of programs yeah. just because I had articles in them. I don't know why I saved them. <laughs> I'm not going to read my own right? stuff. <laughs> but now, now I look back and I see who all was in the lineup that night yeah. and where they went. And they all became, a lot of them became famous players. Now, uh, talking about the Olympics, uh, you know, being a broadcaster, sometimes you get that roster and you see a name that intimidates you. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever had that moment? Oh, where? yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, probably the, uh, the, the strangest was the, um, the 04 Olympics. I was doing water polo, and the host was Athens. And the host country always gets to put a team in all the sports if they choose mm -hmm. to. And so 
the the Greek men's water polo team had a lot of names in which the first name was three or four syllables and the last name was five or six. <laughs> and so, and they passed the ball around pretty quickly. Yeah. And so, thank goodness it was television because sometimes <laughs> you just let right. the, the eye follow the ball. And that was probably the most challenging sport to do, not not only because it was water polo and it moved kind of fast, but also because of all the Greek names and the, the Greek women had a team as well. Yeah. So that was, that. Uh, in terms of, I didn't use first names very often <laughs> because it took so much time. Right. <laughs> uh, so is there, uh, going back a little bit, you, you, you wanted to call baseball, right? That was your original. Idea. That was the idea. Yeah, but, but you never, never had never a great yen to do it. Yeah, but you were able to call it a, a, a major league baseball. I game, was. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, HBO did a um, spent three days with my wife and me. One day in Boston, one in Chicago, and one mm -hmm. at our home near St. Clair, Michigan. And at one point in the talking phase after the piece was over, Andrea Kramer um, was talking with Bryant Gumbel, and he said, "Do you think?" Doc wants to do anything else, and she said, well, I think he'd like to do a Pirates baseball game, and Bob Costas was watching, and the next day, I get a phone call out of the 314 <laughs> area code, and I thought, gee, I don't know anybody in 314. Okay, here goes, yeah. and there it was. He, was. he said, I saw the piece last night. I think we can make this happen, and this was in November. And he said, when our schedule comes out in January, we'll find a game in Pittsburgh, one that I'm doing on a Friday night, and we'll make sure that, he, and this, these were his words, we'll make this an event where you can shine. Now, what announcer does that for right. somebody else? I don't know, not many, but Bob did that for me. So the first three innings, he took care of all the all the promotional things and all the sales items that are always sold for broadcast, mm -hmm. got that out of the way and turned it over to me in the fourth inning. And he said, you go as long as you want to. And at the end of the fifth, I said, I'll do one more <laughs> inning, then you can have it back. Right. But it was a, it was a wonderful thing. And, and for, for one guy to do for another and on the way back to the hotel, he gave me the ninth inning cause we, he waived all rights uh, of, of uh, impartiality. He said, you can cheer for your team. We're going to let you do that. You know, normally we're impartial, but you can cheer for your Pirates. And so uh, he gave it back to me for the top of the ninth because we were ahead of the Cubs. We only beat them four times that year, but that was one mm -hmm. of them. And on the way back to the hotel, I thought, that was wonderful. I'm never going to do it again. But how does a guy do 161 more of these right. in one year. Yeah. And that led me to marvel at all the guys, whether they're doing the tin caps or whether they're doing Major League Baseball, how they do that many games and keep it fresh for themselves yeah. as well as for the audience. I was I was just like that. I wanted to do baseball. That was Did my you? original idea, too, because uh -huh. I, I was a baseball fanatic. I mean, absolutely, you could – say a, a guy and I could read off stats. I, I mean, it was, it was, it was a crazy baseball yeah. geek. 
and uh, I, I worked for it was the Wizards at the time, 1995. Oh, did I worked you? In, in just right out here. Yeah, just just uh, I did game night ops. I just did kind of a few things. I did the PA. I played the music. I did kind of everything. And that was my first taste of kind of pro baseball. And at that point, I was like, I can't do this. I couldn't do this <laughs> for I. I'm like, I'm, it's I, a lot. I'm sticking with hockey. <laughs> yeah, and then then it rains. Right. Right. Or. <laughs> Or you get some uh, your team doesn't show up on time or something yeah. like that. All kinds of things can happen with baseball. I don't know how they do it, but um, they remarkably they love it. I guess that's part of it. It's the same yeah. thing that that affects us about hockey. But but it is uh, it is a long season, and then you throw in all of the preseason games, and mm -hmm. and a lot of those are done on the internet. But you have to still be talking. That's right. And you have to be making it interesting <laughs> for people, regardless of the platform. And it's a long season. But I love sitting there listening to the Pirate games myself, and I'm glad that the guys are, are wanting to do it, but I marvel at how they do it. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, TV and radio, you've done them both. I mean, I've done them both. I actually prefer radio because yeah. you can paint more of a picture. Uh, that's it. And yeah. you're going to find out if you ask 100 guys that question, you're going to get 95 guys, whether they're making their living in television mm -hmm. or radio, are going to say radio for the for exactly yeah. the same reason. Um, but uh, I think that is the one thing that enables you to have more of a control. For example, if you're doing a pregame interview with a coach, you can the two of you can lean against the wall in the runway to the dressing room yeah. and knock out your three and a half right. to four minutes. If it's a television interview, you're going to need 14 people there. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's just yeah, it's, that's yeah, the, yeah. it's the nature of the beast, yeah. and and yeah. you're gonna have to. Ha I'm gonna have to have my tie knot pulled up. I'm gonna have to have makeup done, and I I don't necessarily like to have my tie <laughs> knot done up, and I don't like makeup, but that's it's the nature of how things fell. Right, and it fell that way a number of years ago, and so it's been that way ever since. But you're right, and and if you ask anybody in any sport, they're going to say they they really enjoy radio because it does give them that chance. And that's a transition you had to make. Do you remember making that transition from radio yeah. to TV? Yeah, in 1980, uh, I went from Maine in the American League, where we did three telecasts in three years, um, and none in Port Huron. So in seven years, I did three telecasts to where I did three in the first week in Philadelphia. Uh, and I think the hardest adjustment was to have a headset on and have my own voice in my right ear and have the producer <laughs> and my own voice in the left ear. Uh, Pete Silverman was my producer and he was very good because he realized the adjustment and he would s give very brief commands, like commercial on the whistle. And you know, that's four words but that's four more than I was used to hearing for the previous <laughs> seven years. Right. So it, it was an adjustment to make. And of course, being on camera was different too, and a little disarming. And I think the hardest part, and it's still that way after all these years of being on television, is to do a solo. Mm -hmm. And when Gr Wayne Gretzky had his last game in 1999, John Davidson was my broadcast partner on Fox and we had to be separated for the open to the show because John was hosting on the ice all of the gift presentations to Wayne and mm -hmm. so he couldn't be on camera with me at the start. So I had to open the telecast by myself. It was about 30 seconds. It seemed much longer <laughs> because we didn't have teleprompters. Yeah. You didn't have anything to rely on other than your own memory. And that's, 
that was a lot of practice, a lot of prayer and everything else. And it, it was okay, but uh, it, it was not one of those sleep-filled nights. <laughs> I'm sure you've had those moments where I'm in this business that, you know, uh, technology fails. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you kind of have to do things on the fly. Uh, so that, is that one thing, you know, you've, you, do you have any stories about? Is, you know? Yeah, we had, a, we had a playoff game in Boston uh, on ESPN. Bill Clement and I were working together, and it was um, game four. Edmonton had won the first three, so this was a potentially a clinch game. Craig Simpson, who is now a very prominent broadcaster for CBC, uh, Craig Simpson scored in the third period to tie the game for Edmonton at, I believe, 3-3, three to three, and the lights went out. Now, it wasn't pitch dark, but it was dim enough that it, they couldn't play. Mm -hmm. And so everyone skated around for a little bit, and they realized that they weren't going to the old Boston Gardens power supply wasn't going to come back up right away. So they sent the teams to the dressing room, and then they got the fans to leave. Now, the public address didn't work. And even years later, Joel Perlmuter, who was the public address announcer, maintained that Simpson's goal shouldn't have counted because he, was not, he had not announced the goal over the public address yet because the power had gone out. So it was really three to two. Well, anyway, they got everybody out in the street and Bill and I stayed on because we had auxiliary power. We had enough to continue mm -hmm. broadcasting and CBC was down from us and they were able to stay on, but the arena was empty and we penalty killed for probably an hour and a half. And occasionally, uh, the Los Angeles Kings PA, uh, public relations guy, Dave Courtney, would come across the garden ice and would speak at a normal voice for us and, and, and just tell us what the latest was. And we could hear him perfectly because the arena was empty. And so we would pass that along to our audience. And, and, we were just, and Tom Meese, who was our host, was out in the street with all of the fans trying to inform them because they didn't know what was going on. And after an hour and a half, apparently they had found an old provision in the league bylaws, the Lex Scripta, that Clarence Campbell had written in there in the 1930s yeah. that if any game could not be completed, that you simply moved on to the next game. And so they determined that the power was not going to be a rectifiable situation, that the game was over, and so the next game was game five in Edmonton. So now all these people are in the street and Tom <laughs> is their only conduit of yeah, information. Yeah. And so Tom has to inform them as well as our audience, the game is over and the next game is in Edmonton, which if the Oilers win it, yeah. it's done. What about refunds? I don't know. <laughs> this game is over. And so finally we signed off with all of these questions. Yeah. So now I told you this story to tell you a short one because I know you only have so much time. Um, I'm having breakfast with Nate Greenberg of the Bruins during the playoffs this year. He He's retired from Boston, but he and I get together to swap old stories. So I said, now that the statute of limitations over the power <laughs> outage game 30 years ago is over, were there refunds? <laughs> he
he smiled and said, no. <laughs> oh, wow. But I'm sure because it was before scanned tickets, I'm sure, sure. everybody kept their tickets. Oh, yeah. yeah. And now it's probably framed and exactly. prominent in a lot of dens. Uh, yeah. Right? Yes. Yep. Yep. I'm sure. Uh, well, we have to. Well, we have to talk about Bob. Uh, we got to talk about Bob Chase, of course. Uh, you know, he's the reason why both of us are here. Correct. Uh, you know, so you you finally got to call a game with Bob in 2012. It, was that you've called so many things, but was that one of the moments of as course. far as broadcasting? Yeah, was? this is like uh, getting a chance to shag flies with the Yankees, mm -hmm. and uh, and you see the ball against the uh, against that famous facade that's attached to the roof at Yankee Stadium, and you see it come down, and then it settles into your glove. And then somebody that's, uh, that comes out and has got a big chaw in one jaw comes out and puts their hand on your shoulder and said, by the way, uh, they decided they want to put you in the lineup tonight. Yeah. And you realize that you've got your uniform on already. You might as well. And so you, they, you get in the lineup. And so here I was getting a chance to come back and actually spent some so i spent time memorizing names and numbers and i knew i wasn't going to have a tremendous <laughs> grasp of it because i hadn't seen these guys yeah. play all year and and a lot of it is to see how they skate and so forth so uh, but it was more uh it was more just to be up there and be a, uh, around him and the biggest part of it was that we had some really thoughtful people from nbc following him around and yeah, they were gonna they were gonna take five seconds of me yeah. calling a game, but it was more of they were gonna follow him around, and if people in Seattle and Portland, Maine, and Tallahassee hadn't heard him before, they were gonna hear him. Yeah, and that to me was a lot was a lot more significant than whether I got to call five minutes of a Comet game. It was it was being there with him and with Murph and with his family around. And then eventually on Hockey Day in America, seeing him get his due. Yeah. And it was it was one of the best days I ever spent. Yeah. And, and that night of, of Bob's 90th birthday, uh, I called the, the first two periods. You and Bob came up. Yeah, I, saw, I, had, I remember you know, seeing I, you up there. Uh, yeah. I, so I have Doc on the right, Bob on the left, and I'm calling the game. And talk about the most surreal moments still <laughs> in my life that I don't, I still can't put my arms around it that I called a period of hockey with, uh, with you and Bob <laughs> right next to me. Well, we were kind of glad you were there because you brought the average age of the booth down markedly. <laughs> And we need we needed the average age to come <laughs> right. down a little bit. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you met Bob? Yeah. So I was this college guy from Manchester. I was a senior, and uh, I wanted to get an idea of what the life was going to be like. And so I arranged three interviews in one day, and I jumped in my Volkswagen Beetle. And in the morning, late morning, I interviewed a guy named Len Davis at WGL. And then, um, then I went over to, um, Bob had the early afternoon show. He, sp he spun records at that time, and he also did mm -hmm. the Comet Games. Uh, and so I caught him before his show and did an interview with him, at which time he spun off for me a requested goal call 
that you've undoubtedly heard a number of times. Uh, <laughs> uh, Norm Wozlowski yeah. winning a faceoff with three seconds to go and Len Thornton scoring in a playoff game against Dayton to force overtime. And then later on in the afternoon, I went to Channel 33 and interviewed Hilliard Gates. So that was those were my three experienced Fort Wayne icons that I wanted to record interviews with in one day. I, th I, I still have it somewhere. But that was the first time I ever met Bob in person. I had seen him before at a distance in that first game. I knew where he hung out, you know, when I mm -hmm. was coming to that first game in 1960, and I could see him because he would always stand and do the <laughs> game. Uh, I could never do I that. Have that. I have that same gene. I always do you? stand. I, I can, do you? Yeah, I can't yeah. sit. But he, he would stand, and so he and, and I knew he was tall from remarks that had been made on the radio station, and we always had it on. Uh, so I could see him from a distance, but I'd never met him close up until that time at the station. He came out. I, I sat at on Jefferson, wasn't it, or on Lafayette, where the station was located. I sat in the in the front office near the receptionist desk, and he came out and was very kind. And and we did the interview and about Nate Ramsey's interception in the uh, Indiana Purdue game, and and uh, about uh, Milan Muncy Central mm -hmm. and some of the great. Uh, experiences he had had broadcasting and uh, then he finished off by setting me up wonderfully by uh, I said do you have a thrill uh, with the Fort Wayne Comets he talked about the uh, championships they'd won but then he said but I think Norm Wozlowski's face-off win and Len Thornton's goal will stay with me for a long time which he knew was a brilliant setup for me to plug in the goal that he was yeah. about to spin off for me <laughs> so how good is that Right. <laughs> right. So uh, I've had a lot of people that have been very nice to me over the years, but Bob is, Bob is special in my mind and always will be. Yeah, and I remember uh, when he got the Lester Patrick Award. Uh, you were there, and uh, and he told the Sinatra story. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he told the Sinatra story. Yes, but I remember Steve Levy uh, interviewing Bob, and uh, he made a comment. You know, I don't want to be the guy who replaces this guy. And I'm right. looking at that. I'm like, oh, oh boy. Yeah. No. <laughs> so well, like if, if my shoe, if, if it wasn't hard done, enough. <laughs> you've done wonderfully. Oh, thank you, You've Doc. done wonderfully. And, you know, the, uh, the other thing, too, about that night, Dave Ogren was president of USA Hockey at that time. And he had heard me a number of times talk about this guy, Chase. And as soon as that interview was over, and you know, the, the Sinatra uh, Tommy Dorsey story was one of Bob's favorites, and uh, no one in the crowd had ever heard it. But there was, there was all of that plus the hockey and everything else. And as soon as those, uh, uh, those stories were over, because he was there with, uh, with uh, Dick Patrick, uh, who was also getting the award, and so Steve basically chatted with both of them. And after that, and the two of them received their awards and then went back down into the crowd, Dave Ogren came over specifically to me and he said to me, quote, I finally get it about Bob <laughs> Chase. I get what you've been saying. And that's all it took was for people to hear Bob talk and see who he was like. And if nothing else, that NBC piece gave more people who had not heard him before to see who he was and what he was like. 
and it's it's wonderful that Thanksgiving night is always will be forever. Yeah, the Bob Chase night. I know, you know? and we used to be paying customers yeah, on those. Yeah, that's nights. right. <laughs> Seems like Dayton was always more feisty those nights. <laughs> Dayton tended to, be, you know, that the the league of that era tended to be a a home team league where they would play like tigers at home. Oh yeah, yeah. The gems yeah. were really like tigers at home, but I always noticed on the road they were a little shyer but it seems like they could always be goaded into a fight uh, on Thanksgiving night. And they were mostly Canadians, so they'd already celebrated right. Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> well, Doc, thanks for, for coming in oh, here. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I want to ask one last question. Yes. It's kind of abstract. Uh, you've called uh, Stanley Cup Game 7s. You have called the Olympics. You've called everything. Is there uh, any historical sporting event that you wish you could have called? No. could be anything. I, Babe Ruth home run, uh, no. anything. No, I've been I've been blessed to be in a lot of places, a lot of times, and uh, the 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 level doesn't make any difference. I, I've gotten to see a lot of games in this league that I was excited to call and and blessed to call, and the same in the American League. I got to for uh, 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 a, a, an, an anthology show. They asked me to do a 12-year-old, under 12-year-old girls game in suburban Detroit. And uh, it was it was wonderful. Uh, and they, the NBC dug up a bunch of nuggets on all the girls and interesting facts about them. The one was a concert violinist. And, and another one uh, wanted to be a veterinarian. She had a dog, two cats, and hermit crabs. And I asked her before the game, I said, what do hermit crabs eat? <laughs> she said, rolled up bits of lettuce. Somehow or other, I, I got that on. I thought people needed to know what hermit <laughs> crab, and, and this, this girl had a couple of them. Yeah. And, uh, but that was, was uh, I've had a chance to do a lot of things and I don't regret any of it. And there's not anything else out there I'm seeking to do. I'm just thankful for every day. Any cancer survivor is happy for every day they yeah. get and I am happy for every day I get, including this one. Thank you. When's your first game? Uh, October 12th, See? Kalamazoo. We all know, don't we? Kalamazoo. We Cal go through a summer, and even though the days are <laughs> wonderful and you enjoy the time off, you still have that target date ahead. Absolutely. And you you plan on keep on going, obviously. Yeah, you know. another, uh, they yeah. let me go year to year. There was an old baseball manager named Walter Alston mm -hmm. who got year-to-year -year contracts yeah. with the Dodgers, and NBC's been very kind to me, and they say, you just tell us when you want to quit. So um, I had the conversation with my wife about three weeks ago, and it didn't last very long. She's <laughs> very understanding and said, how do you feel? I said, well, the cardiologist thinks I should peel off some weight. Other than that, I feel fine. She said, okay, goodbye me. <laughs> so uh, one more year anyway. It goes year to year. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, Bob made it to 90. Yeah. Uh, that's, well, maybe that's it, our goal. He gives all of us hope, doesn't he? <laughs> that's right. So mine's October 2nd, Washington and St. Louis. They'll have a banner raising that night. And as far as I know, I don't know any assignments beyond that, but I think they're planning on me being there for Washington and St. Louis, the last two cup winners. And so that's... That's my target date, but it's still two months away. That's right. Lots of pirate baseball. I just like to see him win back-to-back -back games. <laughs> Long-suffering pirate It's fan. been hard. Yeah. 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 Thank yeah. you. Well, thank you, Doc. I appreciate it. And uh, we don't see enough, but hopefully, you know, uh, you, you'll get to Fort Wayne a little bit more. Often. At least once. I know that as of this morning. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, Doc. Appreciate it. Well, there you 
go. Mike, Doc, Emmerich, what a pleasure to have him on the podcast. Uh, we're going to be resuming these uh, coming up during the regular season, but uh, having uh, Doc come in for a visit, uh, the opportunity was too good uh, to pass up, so I got uh, Mike to sit down and talk to us. Glad he did. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're getting ever so close to, to hockey season, folks. October 12th, so uh, those tickets are going to be going on sale uh, probably in about a month, but uh, if you're interested in season tickets or getting a group night together, I'm your guy. I can hook you up. Just uh, give me a call here at the Comet office, 483-0011, or just email me, shane at comets.com. Glad you were here to listen to this great interview with uh, Doc Emmerich, and I hope everybody is looking forward to hockey season and this podcast. Again, we'll resume it uh, regularly uh, when the regular season begins. So this is Shane Alberani signing off on another Combat Ops Arena Comets podcast.